This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. So today, for the first time in a long time, the UK has reached over 50,000 new cases of COVID in a day. Now, James, on the face of it, it sounds like a big number, but aren't we past the point at which we care about cases by themselves? So hospitalizations is is the more important factor, I, I think, than cases, especially given the fact that lots of cases are concentrated in younger age groups who tend not to um, get seriously sick. But more worryingly, I think, is the number of COVID patients in hospital is back over 8,000 now. The Spectator's Data Hub makes the point that the number of COVID patients in NHS hospitals is still in single digits as a percentage. But I think the worry is this, is that the NHS has always been run with very little spare capacity. That That's one of the ways in, in which the system is made in inverted commas efficient. And the worry is that, you know, there are winters. There was one winter, I think, 2018, or was it 2019, when, I think it was 2018, when Jeremy Hunt cancelled, the Van Health Secretary cancelled all elective operations because there was a bad flu season and that reduced space. And I think the worry is that if the number of COVID patients ticks up, it's not that we're going to have a number of cases akin to what we had in the pre-vaccination era, but just that number increasing a bit more could put the NHS under real pressure if you end up with a bad flu season or other classic kind of winter health pressures on the NHS. Now, Katie, in yesterday's press conference, Sajid Javid, the new health secretary, talked about how people need to get more boosters in order to prevent more restrictions coming in. But it does seem like the booster programme has been a bit slowed institutionally, not because people don't want to get them, but because it's kind of hard to uh, get booked or people haven't received their letters. So is there a feeling in government that something needs to be done from the NHS and the government side in order to get that happening? It's an interesting one because there's a bit of a blame game going on at the moment about the booster programme saying uptake's been bad. There's, there's an interesting piece in the Times today by Chris Smith which is looking at the fact that actually despite the fact we keep hearing oh people aren't taking their jabs amongst 80 to 90 year olds there's been pretty good uptake um, when it comes to the booster programme. So I think having a simplistic answer to it which is you know uptake is bad mm. which is definitely the message of the press conference yesterday the onus is very much on people to come forward while you know other issues is, is just too simplistic and therefore there's obviously something about uh, getting the five million unvaccinated people to come forward and take their jab how do you do that is it carrot stick I think the problem I think partly is if you say you're going to bring in vaccine passports obviously lots of moral questions over that too, but if you say you're going to bring in vaccine passports, would someone who hasn't even had their first jab have time to get their vaccine before you get to Christmas? I don't think they would at this point. If you have to have at least eight weeks between your two jabs and then it's two weeks after that to then get to full immunity. And therefore, I don't mean that as a reason not to, but I do think it means that when you're kind of saying, oh, you're going to be able to take part in the world, it's already quite late in the day for that. So I think there's lots of complications, which mean when it comes to 
what's gone wrong is is the fact the royal it's too slow in the sense that you're hearing Jeremy Hunt today talking about the fact that they should bring forward the period by which you get invited for your booster jab so it moves from six months to five months I think things like that are playing quite an important role in this given that uptake isn't as bad as some people suggest I look I, I think that the, the Jeremy Hunt point is right I also think that some of the evidence suggests that immunity begins to wane from five months not six months and so I mean there is possibly a case for making it earlier but I also think one of the things that's happening with lots of people is lots of people are getting in touch to find out when they can book their booster and as Katie says they've been told oh it's not six months since you had your second jab and so they then forget about it and I think one of the things that is problematic is that the government hasn't quite decided what method it wants to use for getting people to take boosters is it your local GP nagging you saying well I think you should come in and do it or is it you know back to the national booking service approach you know everyone is waiting on tender hooks for when they're allowed to get their their next dose and so off they go I mean that is a, a problem I think the challenge for the government is that they need to get these boosters going because all of the stuff in plan b I think is, is relatively light touch but it's also very politically difficult you know i mean the vaccine passports has got a massive round in the Tory party i think boris johnson would be quite reluctant to go down that route because of the fight he knows that he would have to have and i also think on, on, on as per katie's point i think the threat of vaccine passports isn't going to work now because if you know the people who were likely to do it because they feared that oh the government's going to bring them in they would have done it when Boris Johnson said as a kind of statement of fact that you know that by September you would not be allowed into a nightclub um, things that I believe are very popular with young people uh, <laughs> unless you had had both your jabs so I think this is a, a kind of problematic factor that you know and I think the big question we are about to find out is the public's behaviour as this pandemic has gone on has become quite self-regulating. As cases went up, people stayed home. This is the first time we've had a really big increase in cases since the self-isolation rules changed so that you didn't have to self-isolate if you were a contact of someone who had tested positive. And I think what we are about to find out is whether people were self-regulating because they feared the kind of dreaded test and trace ping or whether they were self-regulating because they didn't want to catch COVID. And I think that that is going to be one of the big things that determine, I think, whether this this peak comes off. You know, do people basically get the impression from the news, rightly, that cases are now high again, decide, oh, I'm going to minimise my social contacts now, I'm going to stay home, I'm going to be quite cautious. Or was that behaviour driven by the fact that in the previous thing, if you were unlucky enough to come into contact with someone who had COVID, that was 10 days at home? Now, Katie, another moment in yesterday's conference came when Sebastian Payne, journalist at FT, formerly of this parish, asked a question to Sajid Javid about why MPs weren't wearing masks in crowded areas, i.e. in the Commons. And this is what Sajid Javid had to say. I, I think, I think uh, Seb, that is a very fair point. And think that we, as I say, we've all got our role to play in this. And, uh, and we, the people standing up on this stage, we play our sort of... Uh, let's say, our, uh, our public roles and uh, you know, as, a, as a Secretary of State, as someone in the NHS, as the head of UXA, we've got big roles to play, but we also have a role uh, to play and set an example as, as, as private individuals uh, as well. And I think that's a very fair point, and I'm sure a lot of people would have heard you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Katie, expectedly, I mean, the mask-wearing issue has been a bit of a culture wars, am I right in saying, in, in the Commons, where the Labour benches tend to wear masks, where the Conservatives don't. So is this something that would change in the future, given what Sajid Javid has said? 
It's definitely become an issue like that in the Commons. What I was really struck by the covering Labour and Tory conference is that there were no masks at either of them. When the cameras are not there. Yeah, I think there were even cameras showing these fringes, you know, that, and it got picked up a little, but I was far more surprised at Brighton, obviously it was before Manchester, but given Labour's noise on the issue, how, you know, in the bars, walking around the centre, you know, all these fringes, it was just not very apparent. But yeah, definitely in the Commons, there is a, you know, a point to say, oh, you are less responsible. I think what's interesting about Sajid Javid's comments is that his response seemed to accept there was a point here that if you're actually going to keep talking about how, you know, you don't have to wear masks, but you should wear masks in these enclosed spaces, maybe the people who represent the government should do similar. But yet you've had Jacob Rees-Mogg today, leader of the House, speaking, and he said Tory MPs effectively shouldn't be wearing masks indoors when they're in Parliament. Mm. He said, we on this side have a more convivial, fraternal spirit. Now, I haven't seen that in the public health guidelines when it comes to who should and shouldn't wear masks. (laughs) Um, But I think it points to the fact that while Sajid Javid didn't go all the way out to say my colleagues definitely should. I think the tone of what he was saying was quite clear, you know, maybe we should be more responsible. So what do we think the odds that Sajid Javid will be wearing a mask the next time he's in the chamber? Exactly. He's going to be standing out there, the, exactly. the masked so, man on the front bench. So I think we might be able to see like mask walls within cabinet. Um, but I also think it hints at the fact that the government is obviously trying to sound a note of caution because it wants to spark, uh, you know, some of the caution that we saw around July when it came to Freedom Day, um, so-called Freedom Day, in terms of people judging their own risk and making the right calls. And I think they're trying to bring that in. But what was more complicated about that is, one, I mean, I just I don't think the government do have immediate plans or even medium-term plans at the moment to get anywhere near restrictions. Um, so they're really betting the house on this. But yet, even in their own party, that it doesn't really need to be the sense of alarm. I don't get the sense walking around Parliament today that anyone who you know wasn't wearing a mask yesterday from the Tory right. party now feels the need to wear one today. I, I, I think this mask business, I think this is, comes to the question of if the government are going to make people think, if the government want people to self-regulate, right, we need to give people some clear sense that the cases are rising. Now, I think obviously if the next time Tory MPs were in the chamber, they were all back in masks, if Boris Johnson was wearing masks going to events, that would obviously send that message. But for the government, there is this, I suspect there is this two balancing acts. One is, um, do they want to say to people that, well, when things aren't normal, which wearing masks is quite a visible sign that things aren't normal. Now, that in some ways would have a beneficial effect in that it would make people behave slightly differently, which might help bring the cases down. But I also suspect that that would have a slight effect on people's behaviour. You know, if you ran a a pub, you might be a bit worried if you suddenly saw everyone wearing masks again, because is that going to make people less inclined to come and and hang out in in your premises? And then I think the second thing is a thing about, I suspect, in terms of both the cabinet and the public is compliance, right? You know, not to trivialise it, but it will, there will be an obvious government split story if Sajid Javid is sitting on the front bench next week and the only person wearing a mask and everyone else around him is maskless, right? And I mean, there's also a worry that you end up in a situation where you tell the public to wear masks and they don't do it. You know, t- on Transport for London services, you're still want to, meant to wear a mask. I, I don't think I have been on a journey recently where there's been 100% mask compliance for for a very long time so I think this is this is the the challenge which is you know what you and I think there is also this other point that the John Burns Murdoch point which I know we've discussed in this podcast before which is if you look at what's going on in the rest of the UK 
it suggests, and this is a, a painful truth, that it is indoor mixing that is the issue, not masks. My, my personal thing is that there should be far more emphasis on opening windows, on ventilation and fresh air as the best way of trying to deal with this. Because I think that, you know, people are going to, in this country, people are going to carry on socialising indoors. I think the idea that in looking outside in the weather, in this weather, that people are going to be outside having their cup of tea or having a glass of wine in the early evening is, is not particularly realistic. But it would be much better to emphasize to people if you've got friends over, if you sit, if you've got people outside your household over, open some windows and get the air circulated. Yeah, James, we do know that, and that's why we wear thick jumpers <laughs> in the office with you. And Katie, since the new trade secretary Anne Marie Trevelyan got in, we've not really heard many much good news on the trade deals front. But last night we have had something, which is a agreement in principle with New Zealand. Can you tell us what that means? Is it is it a trade deal or not quite? So it's an agreement in principle, which is what we had with the Australian trade deal. And that means the, the main terms of the deal have been thrashed out. There is an agreement in place, but obviously you need the bit where it actually gets over the line. You know, you get uh, much more into the detail, getting things, um, you know, it's broadly been signed off. So the spirit of the agreement is there, but it's not quite there yet. So, for example, we heard a lot about the Australia trade deal, but that's not been signed yet even though we keep hearing it's about to be um so the new zealand trade deal is now where the australian trade deal is at some point that soon the australian trade deal <laughs> should become right done but it's, in, it's at that point and i mean this is obviously the first trade deal under Anne marie trevelyan the new international trade secretary Lots of the work was done, obviously, by her predecessor, Liz Truss. And I think we're already hearing, you know, um, the National Farmers Union, the NFU, saying that the deal could hurt UK farmers and lower food standards because it does obviously involve agriculture but and agri-food. But I do think this is just something we're almost going to hear of every deal that involves that. And I think there was more concern, or at least, you know, the chorus was louder when it came to the Australia trade deal. I think it's hard to avoid that. I think you're always going to get that hit when it comes to what the UK can give and what it has to take from the other side. James and Katie, thanks very much. And thank you for listening and do join us again tomorrow.